The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I think the worry that we should have in the Taiwan Strait is really about China feeling backed into a corner. Which is not to say that China has not been wrong in this situation. In fact, I, I think much of the erosion of the status quo is China's own fault. But I think to understand what would trigger China to cause a major crisis or a war, we have to understand how they look at this. And from my view, Pelosi's visit was really more about rhetoric than anything else. And therefore, I don't think it helps Taiwan very much. But I do think it introduced a bit more risk into the cross-strait dynamic. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 4th, 2022. Nancy Pelosi made a visit to Taiwan this week. It wasn't exactly a surprise. We all knew it was happening, but it wasn't announced. It wasn't quite official either. Beijing has gone a little bit crazy. There are military exercises taking place off the coast of Taiwan in response. There are threats of war. There was even talk of shooting down Pelosi's plane. We gathered in the virtual jungle studio, a great group to talk it through. Sophia Yan, Beijing correspondent for The Telegraph. Julian Ku, professor of law at Hofstra University. And Zachary Cooper, of the Alliance for Protecting Democracy at the German Marshall Fund. We talked about why Pelosi went. We talked about how Beijing reacted, whether it's all bluster or whether this is the real deal. We talked about what we can expect to happen over the next few months and how we can de-escalate the situation over the next few days. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 4th, Pelosi in Taiwan. Okay, Sophia, get us started. For the the naive American listener, why did Nancy Pelosi go to Taiwan and why does anyone care? So Nancy Pelosi's visit is the first in 25 years for someone that senior from the U.S. government. She's the most senior elected U.S. official to have touched down in a quarter century. So this is really big news. Her trip was planned for the spring. She was meant to go in April, but then unfortunately caught COVID, so had to postpone. And even leading up to this particular trip, just even in the days before, there was no official confirmation 
from her office as to whether or not she would go to Asia, the, the stop in Taiwan being part of a wider trip, and whether or not that trip would include this stopover in Taiwan. So it's been really hotly discussed, really very much anticipated. And, and it's important now because Taiwan is an island with a democratically elected government. It does everything on its own. It's got its own military, its own foreign affairs, its own currency. It's got a president. But this is an island that Beijing claims as part of its own territory. And it's a flashpoint. It has long been a flashpoint for decades. Uh, but the current head of China, Xi Jinping, has made it really a personal thing. He's made it very clear that he would like to reunify the mainland with Taiwan. The rhetoric around this getting more aggressive leading up to Pelosi's visit. It peaks around moments like this when China feels like it's being pushed. And so that's what we've seen, Pelosi coming for this visit and this Taiwan issue kind of blowing up and, and being yet another thorn in, in the whole wider Washington-Beijing relationship. I mean, ties between these two countries are not really at their best in the moment. So, Julian, when we last talked about Taiwan on the Lawfare podcast, it was when Joe Biden had either let slip or accidentally uh, or intentionally accidentally let slip that, of course, the United States would defend Taiwan if stuff came to that. And then uh, there was a little fracas where people said, the administration tried to argue that it hadn't changed its longstanding position. Situate this event against that one. Is Pelosi, uh, you know, reportedly the administration did not want her to do this, but is this a kind of coordinated dance by the United States or is this the Speaker of the House going rogue? (laughs) I think that this is not coordinated. I think I take the reporting at its word that this is not a plan. There was no coordination between uh, the White House to Pelosi to send her on, you know, on their behalf. I think that, like with a lot of things, these codels are. You know, there's a lot of coordination with the executive branch, but at a lower level. And I think that there's every reason to believe that they didn't really want her to go, but that once she decided to go, they tried to talk her out of it, but then when they realized they couldn't, they just sort of said, okay, well, we're just going to sort of own it and then you can go. I mean, it's a little bit of a dysfunction, I suppose, from in our system that we don't really have a way to tightly coordinate foreign policy between Congress and the president. Um, and uh, although there are levers that the president has to sort of limit these sort of codals, I think it's, you know, it's limited. And so this is sort of another example of not sort of sophisticated Washington strategy, but sort of classic Washington sort of dysfunction, I guess, to some degree. Um, not dysfunction is maybe too strong a word, but there's no real plan here. And it's a little bit like the Biden comments that were, I know that you sort of like to read them as a little bit more of a sophisticated strategy. Well, I don't, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, Biden <laughs> right. is more than, he is more than capable of, uh, of having a, a, a logoreal fail. He right. is also capable of pretending to have one. Yes, that's right. So I, my, my sort of take on that was that it was not an intentional strategy to for Biden to say those comments that he would defend Taiwan. And I guess my take on this overall is that this kind of not sort of semi-bumbling sort of U.S. approach to Taiwan, um, meaning that it's not part of some grand strategy, but just various sort of uncoordinated actions and statements is what is particularly irritating China. Um, They would be irritated anyways, 
or angry anyways, but this kind of creates maybe another level of uncertainty that uh, I think that is probably unhelpful. And I don't mind making uh, the Chinese government angry or nervous, but it, but unintentionally making them angry or nervous does bug me a little bit. So that's my take on this. I think if, if Pelosi had gone and Biden hadn't made his comments and there hadn't been this sort of this, uh, the air of, you know, change in the air in, in Washington, which there is, I mean, it's a real sort of sense that we are changing our relations toward Taiwan a little bit. Um, if there hadn't been that background, I'm not sure they would have the same reaction to Pelosi's visit. So, Sophia, how angry is China about this? There's When you're dealing with the Chinese regime, there's always the theatrics of anger and the performance of anger, and then there's real anger. And it can be very difficult, at least for me, to tell them apart sometimes. So are they really pissed off right now, or are they just doing the pissed off dance? So when it comes to Taiwan on issues of sovereignty, China is always pissed off. This is like a don't go there, like no man's land. How they react can give you a sense of just how angry they are. And I think what's interesting about the scenario is that Pelosi, she was meant to go in April, but she ended up going in August. So that meant there was a lot of lead time for Beijing to message, to be angry. And you can't be angry at the same level constantly. You have to kind of up the ante every time. So you do see that over time, the foreign ministry, state media, they were increasingly aggressive in how they were talking about it and much more full-throated in warning against Pelosi coming. Now, state media, they're given a mandate to to do this, right? And then, of course, we saw it really escalate when she and Biden had a phone call. Xi Jinping told Joe Biden to get Pelosi to back off. That, well, that's not exactly what he said. He said, according to the readout for the, from the foreign ministry, that they were playing with fire over Taiwan. So it was like a very thinly veiled message to Biden to get Pelosi to back off. They didn't say it in so many words, but that was the point. But that's not language that's different. I mean, she has said that he's used those exact words uh, with Biden before, the same kind of rhetoric. But what's different now is that there's so much attention paid on the issue of Taiwan. And we're also looking at the context of the Russia-Ukraine war. You know, uh, there we do seem to be at this tipping point. Uh, I keep using this phrase, but the, uh, the between the free world and the not-so-free world. So I think in the context of things, this is what we have to be thinking about. Now, going back to the issue of Beijing having all these months to say nasty things, well, they kind of box themselves in. If they were making these threats and they didn't make good on them, that would be pretty embarrassing. They would look weak. And she in particular, because he has made this such a personal issue, even telling Biden himself very directly what he thought. They couldn't just do nothing, but they also can't do a whole ton of something because then you really risk all out war, which is something for now, it seems that Beijing wants to keep at bay. This is a politically sensitive period of time. She is gearing up to take his unprecedented third term this autumn. So this power transition period, usually the Communist Party wants things to be pretty quiet on the home front. We can dive into that more later if you like. But in this moment, basically, China had to do something. And so in some ways, what they've done, it is escalating. They did engage in military drills. Um, there are more that are scheduled for the next couple of days. So bookending Pelosi's visit. She's wheels up already now from Taiwan as we speak. But they, they have to at least get the specter that they are going to do something because China can't be caught, on, you know, caught out uh, and to be seen as weak on the issue. So a lot of this 
you could say is bluster, but then the, the risk is at what point does it tip over into something much more serious? And that's something that's really hard to tell really from the outside. I mean, the Chinese military, the Chinese government, not exactly the world's most transparent. All right. So there's a huge amount in there and let's unpack it piece by piece. Uh, Julian, I want to start with the question of whether this Chinese response is uh, just bombast and saber rattling and sound and fury that ultimately doesn't signify very much. The Chinese have done, you know, a lot of military jet flyovers in in Taiwanese airspace. They they are quite provocative militarily on a day to day basis. Does it really matter if they do military drills? They don't have a history of having military exercises get under out of control. So how should we how worried should we be about military drills within, you know, close range of Taiwan, but that are not themselves attacks on Taiwan? So I think the I would be more worried than a, than average, but not like at the at the high end of okay, there's definitely going to be some conflict. I think what I think is more elevated than in the past is the announced Chinese live fire military exercises, which are much more extensive than in 1996 during the last crisis with Taiwan, the last major crisis. And they demonstrate China's capability to, if they chose, to effectively blockade Taiwan. Even the ones they've announced, which would, uh, over three days, they've said, you know, you, uh, we're, you know, we're declaring these areas of the uh, airspace and waters which are around Taiwan, you know, you, you cannot enter those because of our military exercises. First of all, some of them overlap with Taiwan's territorial seas, which are 12 nautical miles of Taiwan's coast, which is something new. That That is something they haven't yet done. Um, and the other is that these things are demonstrated how even with the ones they've announced over those three days, uh, commercial ships and aircraft will have to alter and sometimes delay their uh, shipments to Taiwan over that time period. Uh, because they would run it, you know, this this essentially covers normal uh, air routes and commercial routes into Taiwan. I think it's a great effort by the PLA to demonstrate that uh, we can blockade and cut off Taiwan at any time, um, or at least we have the capability to do so. And that is one of the military scenarios that people have thought about, which is why invade when you can just blockade? And they do have the capability. So I think that dem- that's something new. And remember, the last time they did even just missile uh, tests in the Taiwan Straits, the U.S. sent two aircraft carriers back in the 1996. So this is, you know, this is, I think, more extensive military exercises. I don't know that the U.S. would actually respond this time, but it is something that something that's, I think, uh, more troubling. It's an escalation of uh, of what they've done in the past. It's much more than just flying jets into Taiwan's aid. This is a demonstrate. This is much closer. It probably does actually physically threaten some trade into Taiwan, and so I think it's a real. Escalation, it does worry me. Um, so, and I, but I, I think building on what Sophia said, they had to do something because they had been threatening and so much. And in fact, they had raised expectations. I don't know who did it that there would actually be a you know a military action against Pelosi herself, which was always a ridiculous idea, but which people in China, crazy people on the internet, which they have there, just like we have here, kind of thought would happen or something like it would happen, and were disappointed when nothing did happen. So. Uh, so they got to do something, and and um, and so I think they are taking pretty serious measures and escalating um, this beyond your normal yelling and screaming about Taiwan. 
And Sophia, do you think that this is escalation in order to de-escalate, as in they had to they had to do something, they do this, and then they communicate quietly, we'll de-escalate if if you do, or is this, you know, something where they're you know, stomping one foot in order to then stomp the other foot. So I think Beijing has to show that they're not weak on the issue. They sort of box themselves into a corner with all that rhetoric about, um, you know, don't play with fire, you know, bad things are going to come to pass. I mean, the, the messaging was pretty colorful around this. And so in a way, China has to make it look like they are taking a stand I mean, again, when it comes to issues of sovereignty, they really they don't take anything from anyone when it comes to things like this, like Hong Kong, for instance, is on the same uh, same level in that regard. Uh, they really see it as a, an affront and a public affront. I mean, Pelosi, you know, if she had been quiet about it or something like that, if there hadn't been so much public attention on it, then that would have also been a little bit different. I mean, this is very embarrassing for China on the world stage. They are up there saying, this is our territory, hands off, you can't go, you want to engage on foreign policy, engage with us in Beijing. But then, of course, these kinds of visits happen, right? So it's, it's for Beijing, it's, uh, you know, this concept of losing face. It's so embarrassing for them to have to face this, to, to deal with this. So they have to say something, do something, and kind of escalate at least a little bit to show some teeth, really, to show that there's something behind it all. It's really hard to say where this goes from here on out, you know, uh, if you look at how the Communist Party deals with uh, periods that are politically sensitive, which is you know what we're getting into now over the next couple of months, they do really like stability. I mean, it's hard to see how Xi Jinping would move, uh, take such a big step, you know, invade Taiwan, for instance, right now. That could change, of course, after he cements his status and power for this next term, possibly for the one after. There's no telling what comes in a couple of years' time. But right now, it just seems like it's you know a move for show to message that they have uh, firepower behind these words, or at least the specter that they have firepower. All right. So second issue, which you've just transitioned nicely into, is the psychology of Xi Jinping. You've mentioned that you know he's got a party congress coming up. He wants stability in this period. He's also very personally invested in the reunification project. And what you didn't mention is that uh, the Chinese economy is contracting and, or, or at least in not great shape, and that they have only within the last few months had to completely lock down Shanghai, or at least they've perceived they had to. And they have a uh, either a major COVID problem or a major zero COVID problem, depending on your perspective on it. And so I guess I'm interested, Sophia first and then Julian, how do you psychoanalyze what he is thinking now in terms of, is he in a position to do a lot more than, than what we've seen? China really blames the U.S. for all of this. I mean, if you look at how state media has been portraying and how the foreign ministry talks about it, they're blaming the U.S. for escalating things. And their take, Beijing's take is, you know, our hands are clean of this. If things get out of control, it wasn't us that instigated. That's what they keep saying. That is up for debate, of course. 
with the difficulties that she has at home, you mentioned these challenges, never ending COVID lockdown scenario, the economy, you know, trying to rally the general population around something like this, like the issue of Taiwan, stoking the flames of patriotism. I mean, this is a really good distraction. So it's not a bad idea to be pushing this as something to talk about in the moment. Actually taking action is another story, but keeping it in the fold, in the public discussion. I mean, this is one way to to give people something else to think about in this moment. Uh, There is the possibility that she would want to do something big to distract so, so much from all these troubles at home. But again, all out war is, I mean, a lot of experts really still think that this is pretty far off because China would have to know that they could absolutely win. They definitely don't want this sort of Ukraine scenario that Russia's dealing with, you know, months out, still fighting, no clear win. I mean, they can't possibly have a prolonged conflict. It would be really embarrassing. That would definitely tarnish Xi's legacy. And and that's a risk that you probably won't want to take. So it's all of this that I think he's weighing up. Julian, what do you think? Is it, uh, should we understand this as Xi operating from a position of strength or a position of weakness? So I guess I would say that he's pretty strong politically from all I've been able to discern and follow. Sophia probably knows better than I do, but domestically, Within the party, he's in good shape. But domestically, he is facing serious headwinds, I mean, really serious economic headwinds. You know, the, the property market in China is really important for their economy, much more so than even the U.S., and um, it's very volatile and not in good shape and potentially a really big problem if it gets out of hand. So there's lots of stuff domestically you have to worry about. And, of course, that is the most important thing for any Chinese leader. So I think that, you know, he's... Uh, he's worried about that, but and uh, and he's you know I think even if he gets past the party congress, uh, politically he's in good shape. He's still facing those domestic headwinds, which long term is a is a real problem for them. So, uh, so I think he's worried. He would be worried about domestic always first. And I think the way to read the nationalism is as a way to buttress his uh, domestic authority of, of him and the party. And I think that is what's dangerous here because what I do think that we haven't really discussed is that. Um, there's kind of a perception within Chinese elites that has gained hold with a lot of them, or at least seems to have, which is that the U.S. is in uh, inevitable decline, um, that the U.S. is so dysfunctional that uh, it's not really the threat that to China that it, it might be threatening, but not in the same way, the dominant threat that it was in the past. And so therefore, uh, China might be willing to take more risks than it would in the past, even if it has its domestic problems at home, because it perceives the United States as having so many problems that it could never really uh, respond effectively. One way to think about this is that there's lots of thoughts beforehand that the U.S. would get really angry and do terrible things if China uh, changed the terms of the deal in Hong Kong. And ultimately, I think they feel like that worked out for them. They were able to sort of take full control of Hong Kong in, in a way that is works for them, suppresses dissent. And over the protests of people like Nancy Pelosi um, and sanctions in the U.S. And it's it's basically okay. I mean, it's not great, but it worked out for them. And the U.S. is not quite a paper tiger, but it's not nearly the as strong and dominant as I think they would have thought, say, 10 or 15 years ago. And I think that's a factor, too, because even if you are not doing great at home, if, you're, if your adversary is falling apart or politically dysfunctional so that they can't really take actions in response, then I think that is that is something to worry about. Once one thing, one scenario I can think of is 
the small scale military attack to take off, say the the Taiwanese control these islands right off the coast of China. Uh, they could always have been conquered. China never bothered because of for political reasons, but they could at any time just you know take those islands. They're not really possible to defend them and make a statement. Look, we're, we're serious. Don't mess with us. And I don't think Taiwan would be able to effectively respond. It, it's salami slicing on their own side. Take other off offshore islands that Taiwan can't really defend anyway. So I think those things are on the table because I don't think they take the U.S. as seriously as they did in the past as well. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes 
any personal information you don't want online and make sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. All right, we are joined at this time by Zach Cooper of the Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund. Zach, you uh, wrote yesterday uh, or co-wrote a very fierce New York Times op-ed criticizing Pelosi for this move. Walk us through why you think it was reckless and what you think the likely consequences of it are going to be. Well, first, thanks, Ben, for having me. It's great to get a chance to be with you. Uh, yeah, the, the the op-ed may have been fearless. The response has has been fearless also. Uh, so so basically, my, my view uh, has been that I think Congress and the administration are basically talking past one another. They each have two different theories of the case. And the congressional view, you know, this is a little bit of a broad brush, but I, I think you've seen that it, it broadly holds around Pelosi's visit, is that um, China is changing the status quo across the Taiwan Strait, that the way to solve this problem is to demonstrate more resolve by the United States to stand with Taiwan, as well as to provide Taiwan more defensive capabilities to defend itself. And I think that's been evident in Pelosi's visit. It's been evident in the Taiwan Policy Act that's been under discussion, uh, as well as a whole number of other actions by political leaders. On the other hand, I think this administration, especially the White House, views the status quo as actually being eroded in part by U.S. actions. And obviously they can't say this, but but some of this is the president's own statements or misstatements as they were about the existing U.S. commitment to defend Taiwan. But it's also about uh, Mike Pompeo and Mark Esper going to Taipei and suggesting that we get rid of the strategic ambiguity policy and the one China policy, the U.S. one China policy. It's also about things like the Taiwan Policy Act that would formalize U.S.-Taiwan ties a bit more. And, and I think the broader political dynamic in Washington, where there, there's just very little willingness 
to think about the way the Chinese might be viewing some of these steps. And so my fear has been that I, I think the worry that we should have in the Taiwan Strait is really about China feeling backed into a corner, which is not to say that China has not been wrong in this situation. In fact, I, I think much of the erosion of the status quo is China's own fault. But I think to understand what would trigger China to cause a major crisis or a war, we have to understand how they look at this. And from my view, Pelosi's visit was really more about rhetoric than anything else. And therefore, I don't think it helps Taiwan very much. But I do think it introduced a bit more risk into the cross-strait dynamic. That's a really interesting account of the kind of dichotomy between, between the legislature and the executive. But it also kind of brings to mind the Ukraine situation, right, where the the administration is, you know, uh, or th- there's a faction that is very keen to, you know, in the run up to February 24th to, you know, preserve the ability to have a serious strategic dialogue with the Russians. And there's a faction that says, wait a minute, we have to deliver a very firm message and that solidarity is actually part of that message. The Russians obviously sort of obliterated that debate with the full-scale invasion, but I'm curious whether you think that the members of Congress here are looking at Ukraine and saying, hey, we, we just have to be really careful to communicate a very firm message uh, in a way that we didn't across a number of administrations with respect to Ukraine? You know, it's such a fascinating question. So my view is actually that this administration never really expected their deterrence efforts to work in Ukraine. I know that's not what the president said. The, the president did explicitly say several times that they were trying to deter. But my conversations with pretty senior officials uh, across the government ahead of the invasion suggested that they expected an invasion to happen. They did not think that they could deter the Russians, deter Putin in particular, and therefore they were planning really for how to impose costs on Putin and on Russia more broadly after an invasion and how to use an invasion to tie together uh, the NATO alliance more tightly. So I actually never saw what they were doing in Ukraine as a serious deterrence effort. I therefore think that what they're doing in Taiwan across the strait is, is actually completely different. But I think you're exactly right that for many members of Congress, the two look extremely similar. And it looks like we had a deterrence failure in Ukraine. And now we're you know at risk of having one in Taiwan. And they're, um, and they're drawing that connection. But I think it goes to what I was saying earlier, which is that you know the Congress and the administration just see this situation so differently. And they're really talking past each other. Super interesting. All right. So Sophia, I'm, you've spent the last three years in Beijing, and I'm curious from your point of view, who is psychoanalyzing the Chinese leadership correctly? Is it Congress or is it the administration? So it's been five years, if you can believe it, time flies. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's just so hard to really, everyone's reading the tea leaves. It's so hard to really get inside what's being said in, in these halls in Beijing. Honestly, I, I really think that nobody quite has a handle on what Xi Jinping truly, truly thinks. I mean, there's always this question of, 
are the people advising him telling him what he wants to hear or are they telling him like it is? It's politically risky for them either way, right? So is he getting even the right information? So it's it's almost impossible to really get that sense. And I think, you know, I'd be curious, Zach, for your take on this. Um, it's been so many months that Beijing had for teeing up how they would respond. You know, they had months to say, don't come and to issue warnings and threats. But in a way, did it give Pelosi less of a chance to back down the more vocal that China got? I mean, that could be seen really as weak, right? As having caved to these demands, maybe possibly for a wider good in the long term. But what's your take on that? Sophia, I, I think this is a really interesting question. And I agree that I actually think the time factor has has probably not gotten enough attention. You know, my guess is that Pelosi's team thought in April that the visit wasn't that risky. And I actually agree. I think in April, it wouldn't have been that risky. I think what happened between April and August was that the pressure on this visit increased. It increased politically in the United States, but it's also because we had a series of actions, Biden's statement in May, trips by Pompeo and Esper to Taipei uh, early in the, the summer, um, the Taiwan Policy Act moving through Congress, and then, of course, the, the party Congress uh, being just around the corner now. All of this, I think, made a visit in, in August even more pressurized than it would have been. So I I think if Pelosi's visit had happened back in April, it probably wouldn't have been that big a deal at all. And I wouldn't have opposed it. It was really the time factor. But the the one question that I'm left with, Sophia, is, you know, would there have been an option? It's too late now, but would there have been an option for Pelosi to go and say December? She'd probably be outgoing speaker by then, but she'd still be the speaker. The Chinese, I think, wouldn't have been so upset, but it would still have been such a positive signal from her standpoint uh, to go both for political reasons and to support Taiwan. So I, I think there was probably a window to look at another time. But but once the visit got announced in late July, I, I think it was going to be very hard for her to back out. All right. So I want to argue the Pelosi side of the thing here. And uh, Julian, I'm going to do it in a way that's provocative, which is, hey, look, we do these phone ops operations, freedom of navigation exercises in Chinese territorial seas, and we do them precisely because they are provocative, precisely because they are challenges to sovereignty claims that the rest of the world doesn't accept, and precisely because they force the issue of the world saying to China, we do not accept these uh, sovereignty claims on, on the territorial seas to the point that we will sail through them in provocative fashions with military vessels in order to make the point that they are international waters. So why is what Pelosi is doing any different from what the U.S. Navy does on a pretty regular basis? I think you're right in the broad brush, um, although like with everything, there's a lot of the details matter here. So uh, you're right that the, the symbolically or maybe geopolitically, when the U.S. Navy does a freedom of navigation operation in the South China Sea in particular, it is a way, uh, it's certainly become a way to be seen as pushing back against China's expansive and ridiculous, frankly, um, in most cases, uh, claims to sovereignty or maritime so uh, jurisdiction in that area. But it's officially speaking, the U.S. Navy always says all we're doing is just following the law of the sea. We're not 
necessarily just challenging China's sovereignty claims. We're just trying to enforce the rules of the road here. And so uh, it has that two level. So the official story is that we're not really challenging uh, the sovereignty claims, even though I think you're right that the broader message is that we are. And the same thing's going on here in Taiwan. I think, you know, the United States does not support Taiwan independence. That's the official policy. And we don't necessarily say we would defend Taiwan if China's attacked. Uh, but the, the point of the visit is to say that, yes, we would. We effectively treat you as an independent government. And we effect, and Pelosi has said, we will stand with Taiwan, right? Yeah, ironclad support for Taiwan. Um, all that stuff is sounds a lot like, and I think is meant to sound like, we would actually uh, support Taiwan effectively as an independent country and uh, defend it if it was attacked. So there's that two-level sort of conversation going on here. But you notice how Pelosi did not make it an official stop. There's going to be little things she does to make sure that it's not seen as, you know, it's not an official visit, it's not a state state visit, and that certain things she says will keep it from being sort of technically speaking an official visit. But, you know, in broad brush, it isn't meant to, to message, and China takes the message that we are essentially on board with an effectively independent Taiwan and that we were, we would be most more likely than not to defend Taiwan in the event of Chinese attack. So that sort of double level messaging, I think, is, you know, is, is kind of annoying to, to China. I, I actually think I'm coming around to view that it's actually good because I, I think we need to put the Chinese a little bit on the defensive. We're always reacting to things they do. And on these issues, I think, it, first of all, the policy overall, from a moral point of view, is, is a good one. The, the results are good. And second, I don't like to be always reacting to what the Chinese do. I think sometimes there's some benefit to forcing the Chinese to be react to react to what the U.S. Is, does and to create a little uncertainty on their end. Maybe not too much, but I, I am frustrated sometimes that we're always playing defense against things China does. So, so I want to ask each of you to think a little bit about what happens now. Sophia, you say they had to do something, so they're doing something. Does this fade away now and and, and de-escalate, or like what do the next three months look like here in your mind? What are the range of possibilities that you think are likely? I think the messaging around Taiwan coming out of Beijing is going to stay the same and possibly get louder because of the Party Congress. Xi Jinping is taking on this unprecedented third term, so he needs to be thinking about what issues, you know, how they want to be talking about issues of importance. And this is definitely one that he's staked a personal claim to, which is also, you know, makes it so risky for him. I mean, he can't possibly fail on this Taiwan issue or be seen to fail. So that's a detail to remember. Whether or not Beijing continues to get more belligerent, I suppose that has to do with whether Pelosi says very much after she gets back or if there's more movement, comments made by other parts of government, what U.S. policy looks like. I mean, if there's something that Beijing feels it really needs to react to, my sense, and this is really a guess, is that they probably just want all this to quiet down. They're going to do these military drills. They're doing them now, these next couple of days, bookending her visit with what seem to be pretty aggressive tactics. But outside of that, they'll hopefully have felt like they've made their point. And then it's really time to get ready for the party congress. You know, August, this is the time when this is like very much (laughs) Communist Party internal dealings, but they all decamped the beach for figuring out what next. And this is an advance of the party congress that's going to happen in the autumn. So their focus is going to be on the domestic political situation, which isn't necessarily so different from how they view the rest of the world and how they deal with foreign policy. Often with China, domestic and foreign policy are one and the same, but their focus needs to turn. Uh, Taiwan is part of that. 
But my sense is that they're probably going to want to try to move away from being pushed to directly engage on this issue. What do you think, Zach? Are we likely to see things heat up further or are they going to cool down at this point? Well, I'm hopeful that we're going to get through the next few days without a major uh, incident. And I, I think that would be you know, very good news from my standpoint. But I, I don't think the pressure is going to come off over the next few months. I, I think that Beijing will likely look for diplomatic, economic ways to continue putting pressure on, on Taiwan probably more than they'll put pressure on Washington over this issue. You know, that is often the pattern that that Beijing puts pressure on Taipei rather than Washington, even when it's Washington that's really taken a step that, that the Chinese are angry about. But I think there's also a longer term question, which is how does this play heading into the next 18 months? And what I mean is, we're going to have an election in the United States in 2024, uh, and we're going to have one in Taiwan as well. And I, I think the danger will be that both elections could feature some pretty heated rhetoric about China. And I think the Chinese response to that rhetoric and the Chinese preparation, the messaging in advance of that rhetoric is going to probably heat up after the party Congress. So I hope that we're going to get through the next few days, the next few weeks without a major incident. But I, I think it's hard for me to figure out a way over the next 18 months that we're not going to end up in a very serious crisis. Julian, one actor we have not talked about in this conversation is the Taiwanese government. In the Taiwan Straits, it takes two to crisis, or maybe it takes three to crisis. What is the posture of the Taiwanese government, which on the one hand, you know, it's a big coup for them to get the Speaker of the House. On the other hand, it's a bit of a Pyrrhic victory if you get the Speaker of the House on uh, Tuesday and you get invaded on Thursday. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a good, this is a great point. I mean, Taiwan itself often gets left out of this discussion. I think that from the Taiwanese government's point of view, I think Speaker Pelosi is is a benefit. Uh, her visit's a benefit, so it lends them more prestige that they're able to maintain close ties to the United States um, and build on that. And I think it's a, and I think it's also understated that you know there is a loss of confidence, a little bit anyways, within ta- the Taiwanese public as a result of. The perceived um, kind of weak response on to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, because I think from the Taiwanese point of view, it's not a great response <laughs> from, for Ukraine to get crushed, um, even the way it has been. So, and just just back up and pause on that point, because of course that's not the Ukrainian view of the matter, and it certainly isn't the U.S. view of the matter. In the U.S., you know. We talk about how strong the response has been, how coordinated, how uh, substantial. Why do the Taiwanese see it differently? I think there are some polls that showed that people, uh, that there's a drop in, because the Taiwanese sort of baseline expectation, which probably was maybe overstated, was that if there was a Chinese invasion, it would not just be more weapons to Taiwan, but it would actually be an actual U.S. military intervention. Uh, whereas in uh, obviously that was not the baseline expectation in Ukraine, but I think from the Taiwanese public's perspective, like the fact that U.S. military did not uh, directly intervene was disappointing to a lot of people in Taiwan, and and it was shown in polls that showed that loss of confidence that the U.S. would then come to Taiwan. The thought being that they're not going to defend Ukraine, would they necessarily come to defend Taiwan? Now maybe that's a 
you know, that's probably a mistake in reading the different relationships. But I think there definitely was a sense of a loss of confidence in the likelihood of a U.S. defense of Taiwan within the Taiwanese public. And I think these types of visits do bolster that and bolster the ability of the Taiwanese government to say, you know, we're working on building, uh, maintaining that relationship that does enhance our security and having Speaker Pelosi there does do that. I mean, I think in some broader sense, it does more tightly connect the United States in a public way to Taiwan and make it uh, more likely, I think, than the U.S. would uh, be likely to intervene if you have high-level government officials uh, coming to Taiwan and saying things like, we'll stand with Taiwan. So so I think that's that's good for them. I think the Taiwanese government though, does have some hard choices to make. They're going to, uh, as Zach noted, they will bear the brunt of whatever China does in reaction to this visit. They already are. There's the military exercises. There's the economic sanctions. So far, light, but you know, potentially a problem. On the other hand, they're already kind of, you know, they're already kind of have really bad relations with uh, the mainland. So, you know, how much worse could things get? So, but so they, I think, I think they'd rather try to continue to build out uh, its connections with Congress, its connections with the United States, and more tightly link uh, the United States with with Taiwan, and just sort of uh, take what they can from, uh, you know, just get ready to take take whatever punishment they get from China. Uh, which, you know, which again is bad, but it's, you know, something that they've, they they don't have a lot of great relations right now anyways. So I think, uh, now I, I do worry a little bit about that, the future though, because I think the, the current regime is pretty cautious. Uh, they would not make a formal declaration of independence, for instance, which is, and, and, and they understand the limits of what the U.S. is willing to support. I'm not sure that would be true going forward. And I think that is a concern for the United States. If you continue to just say, we'll always stand with Taiwan, Will you eventually get a, a new government in Taiwan that is more aggressively and unrealistically, I think, um, in favor of formal independence and will take riskier moves? That would be, I think, really a problem for uh, for the United States. So I think that's what they're thinking right now. I think they're happy. They're not like happy about the military exercises, but I think they feel like they can ride this out for now. So, Zach, one one thing that I would be doing if I were the Taiwanese government watching Ukraine is rearming and bolstering military capability. The Taiwanese, it seems to me, have long had this idea that like, like they're wildly under-militarized relative to the threat that they face. Are there signs at this point that they are rethinking that posture? I haven't seen the kind of signs that you might expect, given the level of pressure we're seeing. Um, so, you know, the the percent of GDP that that Taiwan spends on defense has typically hovered around sort of two percent, which which isn't particularly low compared to a lot of U.S. allies. But in Taiwan's position, where it's not a U.S. ally and it faces, you know, arguably the most severe threat of almost any uh, any major uh, location on Earth, other than maybe Ukraine, I, I think it's hard to see uh, why why Taipei isn't spending more, other than than a basic argument, which is that what's really going to determine whether Taiwan is able to hold out in a conflict is as much whether the U.S. intervenes as it is exactly how much Taiwan spends itself. Let, let, me, let me break in there because I, I mean, I do think that 
one of the reasons the United States has been as willing as it has to make huge investments in Ukraine over the last six months is that they showed the fighting capacity to do it before we went all in. And I think if the Taiwanese are missing that, like if if the if Ukraine had just gotten rolled over in the first three days, they wouldn't have HIMARS today. You know, that we would probably be supporting some degree of insurgency. But I, I think the the fact that they have made as a substantial as military commitment as they have over the last eight years really affects the way the United States interacts with them. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. And and I think this is part of why you're seeing a move in Congress to uh, encourage, or, or maybe the better word is force Taiwan to shift some of how it approaches defense issues, right? To spend more money on certain types of capabilities. But you know, you have to keep in mind, part of the challenge for Taipei is Taiwan can't just go out on, on the market and buy arms wherever it wants. And it also doesn't have a robust enough defense industry to build everything it might want. There are very few countries that are willing to sell Taiwan advanced military capabilities. The U.S. is the primary one, and the U.S. isn't willing to sell a lot of uh, arms to Taiwan of, of different types. And so this, I think, is going to be over the next maybe six months, a huge debate in Congress. What does the United States do in terms of providing Taiwan additional military support? Do we provide foreign military financing, which is something under discussion, in addition to the existing foreign military sales? Exactly what will the U.S. allow to be funded under those programs? Uh, I, I think this is probably where a lot of the attention will turn after Pelosi's trip has died down. We are going to leave it there. Sophia Yan, Julian Koo, Zach Cooper, thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer is me on this episode. Apologies for any bad sound, but we put this together really fast. Hey folks, you need to do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast, so tweet this episode, share it on Facebook, pin it on Pinterest, Write something learned about it to promote yourself on LinkedIn. You know the drill. Talk about us incessantly at cocktail parties. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Yes, the same Sophia Yan, who is our guest on the show today. And as always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.